If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to John chapter 15. John 15, beginning in verse 9. You can find that on page 958 of the Pew Bibles. If you don't own a Bible, please take that as our gift to you this morning. Tis the season of gift giving after all. Now, one of the great delights and stressors of the holiday season is giving gifts. Whether this Christmas you're giving one gift or 50 gifts, you're forced to think of the same question every time. What exactly do I get them? Let me talk to the children real quick. Few things are more loving than giving your parents a really clear Christmas wish list. Just kidding. My kids aren't even here. I don't know where they went. There's no one size fits all when it comes to gifts. No panacea present, right? A teenager might be happy with cash, but a toddler isn't. A unicorn puppy, this is what one of our kids have asked for. I don't know what that is. A unicorn puppy might please the little girl, but not the bigger boy. Good gift giving requires thoughtfulness. Okay, our Amazon cart right now has like 10 times more things in it than we'll buy because we're trying to think through each kid. This one likes science and Pokemon, this one crafting and jewelry, this one puppies, the fourth one. I don't know, really don't. I'm open to suggestions. We're thinking through what they already have, what they would like and what would actually benefit them. Now why go through so much effort? Well, what's the point of a Christmas gift? You could take Charlie Brown's cynical opinion that it's all capitalism and consumerism. True for some, I'm sure. More optimistically, what's the point of a gift? You're trying to provoke joy in someone as they come to know in a new way that you love them. Okay, you're revealing your love toward them in hopes that they will recognize it and feel joy. Think about some of the best gifts that you've ever received. The best gift you've ever given. First, I'm sure you didn't pick it out. Someone surprised you. You were taken aback by this person's thoughtfulness. Like the level at which they get you. You were shocked by their generosity. The lengths at which they would go to make you happy. The gift met a real need or desire. And so you overflowed with a kind of reflex. A reflexive joy at the knowledge that you're loved. This is a lot harder to do with adults. It's much easier with young kids. This is why Christmas in early years is so magical, right? You can picture the child opening gifts, suspense turns to smile, smiles turn to embrace. This is what good gifts do. They communicate love to the recipient in such a way that it evokes joy. It's really in the moment a shared love and joy. Now Christmas is about gift giving. It's not fundamentally about the gifts that we give each other, but the gift that God has given us. It is about the gift, the greatest gift. And unlike the gifts that we give each other, this gift never breaks. Its glory doesn't wane. Its allure doesn't decline. Its usefulness never ends. God gives us himself in his son. But why? What is God doing at the first Christmas? What kind of gift giver is he? How you answer this will reveal quite a bit about what you think about God. 
why does God give the Son? God sent his Son so that you might overflow in joy at the knowledge of his love. Yes, the Son came to make a remedy for sin, to destroy our enemy, to roll back the curse, but this is all a means to an end. The goal of the gospel is a loving union with God that reveals his glory and produces our joy. The Westminster Shorter Catechism grasps at this. It begins by asking, what is the chief end of man? Answer, to glorify God and to enjoy, to enjoy him forever. God gives the perfect gift. It's unexpected as God the Son becomes man. It's costly as he pays his life. It gets us as God knows both what we were made for and what stood in the way. In the gospel, God provides all that we need and in doing so demonstrates his love for us and invites us into friendship with him, the kind of friendship that produces joy. Brothers and sisters, God is after your love-grounded, love-rebounding joy. Does this surprise you? God gives the greatest gift to his people that we might experience joy in him. This is what the gospel is about. John chapter 15, if you're able, I'll invite you to stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. John 15, beginning in verse 9 and going through verse 17. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I kept my Father's commands and remained in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything I have heard from my Father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain. So that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you, love one another. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. You can be seated. Our big idea this morning, God gives the Son to us to unite us to himself so that we might be filled with his love, his wisdom, and his joy. God gives the Son to us to unite us to him so that we might be filled with his love, his wisdom, and his joy. It's a little longer, I'll say it one more time. God gives the Son to us, to unite us to him so that we might be filled with his love, his wisdom, and his joy. We'll organize our time around these three gifts that we receive in the Son. First, Jesus shares his love with us. Second, Jesus shares his wisdom with us. And thirdly, Jesus shares his love with us. Or joy with us, sorry. So good, we gotta do it twice. Jesus shares his love with us. Jesus shares his wisdom with us. Jesus shares his joy with us. Love, wisdom, and joy. I use the word share with a bit of precision. One of the things I really want us to see in this text is that Jesus doesn't merely act toward us, which he does, 
But more than that, in giving himself to us by becoming man and then indwelling us with his spirit, he shares his own love and wisdom and joy with us. So yes, Jesus loves us, he teaches us, he gives us reasons for joy, but there's something more profound at play here in that Jesus is sharing his own love and wisdom and joy with us such that the loved one becomes lover, the known one becomes knower, the object of joy becomes joyful. Jesus shares himself with us. Now we're in John chapter 15, we're in the middle of Jesus' farewell discourse, just hours before his betrayal, his arrest, his crucifixion. Jesus' aim, as we've seen, has been to prepare his disciples for his subsequent death and departure. He's teaching for comfort. And at the heart of his comforting teaching has been what we've seen. It's the revelation of the triune God and our union with him. Right before trial, Jesus is pressing into the mystery that we were made for. Now we saw at the end of chapter 14 two phrases that really capture this relationship that we have with Christ. It's because he lives that we live. Now how is this possible? It's because he's in us and we're in him who is himself in the Father. There is this mutual indwelling that brings with it the gift of life. Now this concept is easier to catch with a metaphor And so Jesus describes our relationship and connection to him like a vine on the branches. We receive our life from and in Christ. In fact, it's the only way that we can live. Apart from him, we die, we wither. And because we're in him, his life flows to us and it leads to Christian fruit. Jesus in this morning's text is going to carry on the same ideas about this union but without the vine metaphor And he's going to couch it in slightly different terms. So instead of speaking about Jesus' life flowing to us, he speaks about his love, his knowledge, and joy that he shares with us. Same idea. We've been so united to him that what is his flows to us. We begin with the first one. Jesus shares his love with us. Maybe put differently, Jesus makes us the object of divine love. He makes the loved one a lover. Verse 9 is the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. You know, some texts they start nice and slow. You're able to kind of wade into the waters. This one like begins at the Mariana Trench. You could spend a lifetime plumbing the depths of this verse and never hit the bottom. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. You could spend eternity trying to wrap your mind around it, and with every passing century, you'd not be closer to the end. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Cyril of Antioch in the 5th century comments, the statement is so deep. It's so deep, and it sets before us the entire significance of the economy in the flesh. He's saying this single verse, it doesn't only just grasp at the whole of the gospel of John, but the entire incarnation. All of God's saving works towards humanity summed up here. The whole of it in this one verse. It is the love of God toward us in Christ. In the incarnation, God reveals, or the Son, God the Son reveals the Father to us and brings us to the Father that we might enjoy 
the kind of love that the Father has for the Son. Paul speaks about this love in Ephesians chapter 3 there in a prayer that he prays for the church in Ephesus. He says, I pray that you being rooted and firmly established in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, the height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. His prayer for us is that we would come to know the unknowable, the love of God toward us in Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you ever just sit around thinking about God's love toward you? Maybe this thought occupies your mind when you're feeling closest to God, when you're awestruck by his mercies, when you feel the pull of his heart like the tide, when you're feeling washed on the waves of his grace, when you feel lost in an ocean of never-ending, always-abounding love, when the sands of doubt are nowhere in view, do you think about the love of God? Maybe the thought of God's love more occupies your mind when you feel furthest from him. Like, does he really love me? Like Alfalfa pondering after Darla's affection, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Does God really love me? Jesus tells us not only that God loves us, but how he loves us. Verse 9 is, the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Jesus is saying that his love for us, it's analogous to, it's not exactly the same, it's similar but different. It's similar to the way that the Father loves the Son. Think about it. There can be no greater source of love than God because, 1 John four sixteen, God is love. There can be no greater object of love than God because God is infinitely lovable. We heard this in the great Shema. We are to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is true of no one else but God. There is none more desirable, none more impressive, none more moral, none more good, none more worthy of love than God. He is most lovely. The chief end of God is to glorify God and to love himself forever. There is no higher or greater love than the love which with God loves himself. Why do we love things? It's because we perceive something good in them. Think about a human father's love for his son. This might sound strange, but they love seeing themselves in miniature. They delight in their own imprint in something else. There's a kind of a sharing of goodness. They're similar to each other. Now think about the divine father and the divine son's relationship. They're not just similar. The father eternally begets the son, giving him all that he is, such that when the father looks upon the son, he sees his perfect self-reflection. He sees his son, his image, his wisdom, his word. He sees the same divine nature, but as begotten word. It's as he's looking in a perfect mirror, same God as son. Okay, it's a little technical. I know what's the point. Well, how much does the father love the son? It's divine love for divine son. 
It's infinite, eternal, complete, unbroken, blissful, joyful. There is no higher pleasure for the Father than to contemplate himself in the Son. The Father loves the Son. He loves seeing himself in the Son. It's perfect love from and for God. Well, how much and in what way does Jesus love you? Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. <laughs> now, there's a kind of flexibility with the way that we use words. Think about love. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my dog. I love books. I love tacos. Okay, we're, not, we're using the word in a similar way, but different. You don't use the word love in every kind of way. The object's worth and its kind determine the love that you give it. Okay, you don't love your kids and your dog in the same way. You shouldn't. Some people do. Right, when you see someone treating their dog like a real human child, maybe better than they treat their own children, you intuitively know something's not just weird but wrong. There's something disordered. The object doesn't match the attention and affection it's receiving. They're pulling it up higher than where it ought to be. Okay, you have to love your dog as is proper for a dog. That doesn't mean you're cruel to it. You treat it with a level of respect and dignity fitting for a dog. You treat your child as is fitting for a human child. Okay, this is obvious. I walk my dog on a leash. I rarely walk my kids on a leash. <laughs> I never, I never walk my kids on a leash. Okay, there's a flexibility with the way that we use the word. We use it analogously, similar but different. Now, it's worth saying this, God does not love us more than God loves God. That's what we want in our flesh for us to be the center of the universe. God doesn't desire your good or your glory above his own. That would make him an idolater. The gap between a dog and a child looks like nothing compared to the gap between God and you. And yet, how much does God love you? With what kind of love does he love you? Verse 9 is the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Think about it. What kind of love does a rebellious, treacherous, useless creature who adds nothing to God but only tries to take from him deserve? None. And yet what kind of love does he give us? Jesus is saying he loves you similar to how God the Father loves God the Son, which is an infinite, perfect, unending, overflowing, complete, blissful, and blessed love. It is divine love fitting for divine son. Jesus is pulling you up from the love that you deserve to give you the one that you don't. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. We sing about this in the last verse of here is love. Here is love as, as the heavens. Countless as the stars above are the souls that he has ransomed. Precious daughters, treasured sons, we are called to feast forever on a love beyond our time. Glorious Father, Son, and Spirit, now with man are intertwined. God is pulling us up from the love that we deserve to give us the love that we don't, which is the love of the triune God. The love of God for God. Brothers and sisters, you would do well to dispel any notions in your mind that God's love toward you is weak, that his friendship is fickle, 
that his gifts are stingy, that he spends most of his time frowning over you rather than rejoicing in you, that he saves you but only just barely. No, God treats you as he treats his son, which is to say he loves you right now similar to how he's loved Christ forever. As the father treats the son, so he treats you. The son gives us all that is due him by nature and right. He gives us his gifts of grace. His sonship, his righteousness, his spirit, his kingdom, the love of the father he gives to you. He loves you. It's a kind of love that demands a response. We see there at the end of verse 9, Jesus says, remain in my love. Jesus is repeating the concept that we saw in the last text, this idea of remaining in, of abiding, of persevering, and we are to continue in Jesus' love, to live in it, to make our home in it, to experience it. And Jesus tells us how to do this. Verse 10, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Now, to be clear, Christ is not making his love contingent on our obedience, as though we love him first and then he loves us in response. Same gospel writer, 1 John chapter 4. Love consists in this, not that we loved God. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, which is our unlove. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first, he first loved us. The only reason that we love God is a response. It's because God initiated and loved toward us and shared his love with us by indwelling us with his spirit. God's love leads to our love which blossoms forth in obedience. His love makes us lovers. I think it's important for us to grasp that Jesus is not calling us to a one-way relationship as though he can love us He can give himself up for us. He can pursue our good and then we can be indifferent toward him. That's not possible. This is where the vine and the branches metaphor is so helpful. A branch doesn't produce fruit to live. Rather, it produces fruit because it lives. We don't obey to earn his love. Rather, we obey because we have been loved. Our love blossoms forth in obedience to Christ. It can't not And love for Christ looks like trusting obedience. We saw this, John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Augustine comments here, we love him to the degree that we keep his commands, but the less we keep them, the less we love him. Obedience, as Pastor Josh regularly tells us, is Jesus' love language. Make no mistake, the whole thing is about love. In love, Jesus commands. In love, we obey. And what exactly is the command that we are obeying? It's about love. Verse 12, Jesus says, This is my command, love one another as I have loved you. One commentator in the 13th century summarizes this well. Simple terms. To abide in Christ is to abide in his love. To abide in his love is to keep his commandments. His commandment is to love. (laughs) He loves us. He commands us to respond in love. 
Jesus shares his love with us that we might be like him. Notice, he is the model, the source, the example of this love. We see this in verse 10. We obey Jesus just as Jesus obeyed the Father. How did Jesus obey the Father? We see this in Philippians chapter 2. Once he became man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. He does so as an act of obedience. In verse 12, Jesus is the model. We love one another as he has loved us. Well, how has he loved us? Verse 13, Jesus says, no one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. If love is about the sacrifice of self for the good of someone else, then there can be no higher act of love than to completely give up yourself so that they might live. You die so they can live. Your interests die so that they can pursue theirs. This is what Christian love looks like, Jesus is telling us. It's a model for all of us. And yet, of course, Jesus dies in a unique way as his death alone provides life for the many. As his death was a means of bearing our sins and God's wrath, he died so that we can live. Now, I think what's maybe most shocking about verse 13 is that Jesus says that he dies for his friends. It's hard to get over. Friendship is a voluntary bond. Like you don't choose your family. You don't really choose your coworkers. You barely choose your fellow church members. But you can choose your friends. I don't know about you, but my friends are the people I like. Like, I enjoy them. I want to be around them. I long for their company. Friendship is about reciprocal love and joy. The cross, no doubt, I'm sure you think about it as a place where Christ died for sinners. Romans 5.8, Christ died for sinners. Maybe you even think about it as a place where Jesus won his future brothers and sisters. Do you ever think about it as a place where Jesus died for his friends? Do you think yourself a friend of Jesus? It shocked me because friendship is reciprocal, but on the cross we killed our enemy, and yet he was dying for his friends. Right? We hung him with hatred in our hearts, and yet he hung in love. But Christ's death is so effective, in fact, that it makes his enemies his friends. The loved ones become lovers. In love, God pulls us up from the kind of friendship we deserve to give us the one that we don't, friendship with him. But Christ's love, of course, is not just something that he does to us. It's something he shares with us, which is why he expects it from us. Just as his life flows to us, his love flows to us. Notice the father, just as the father has loved the son, the son has loved us. And just as he loves us, he expects us to love one another. Jesus expects this kind of love to be typical for the Christian community. It's a place where the love of the Father through the Son comes to us and it's rebounding to one another as we lay down our lives for each other. It's as we do this, John chapter 13, that we actually prove ourselves to be disciples of Christ. Jesus doesn't just love us from afar. He shares his love with us in such a way that it changes us. It changes us. The loved ones become lovers. Jesus loves you. He expects you to respond in love toward his people. It's not all that Jesus shares with us. He also shares his wisdom 
or his knowledge. Jesus shares his wisdom with us. Jesus goes on with the idea of friendship there in verse 14. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now to be clear, again, our obedience is not the cause of friendship. It's what one commentator calls the sign of friendship. The cause of friendship we see in verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you. Jesus chose us to be his friends. The cause of friendship is divine initiative. Where God chooses us, he sends the son for us, the son dies us, he regenerates us, he puts a spirit inside of us, he makes us his own children. God is the cause of this friendship, but the sign of the friendship is obedience. If you are my friends, you will do what I command you, is what Jesus is telling us. Now, I don't know about you guys, but authority is not what typically marks my friendships with people. Like if I show up at a friend's house and they start telling me what to do, (laughs) unless I'm there to help them paint or move, I'm making new plans and new friends. We're reminded here that our friendship with Jesus is not one with equals. God is the one who has humbled down to us and lifted us higher than we deserve. The son's friendship is grace to us, but just because he's friend doesn't mean that he ceases to be Lord. He continues to command us, but now he does so also as a friend, which changes things. Verse 15, Jesus says, I do not call you servants anymore. There was a time we were servants. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. Now, I don't have any servants, but I do have four young kids. They're somewhere between a servant and a friend. This would have been true in Greco-Roman society. True also in my house. Now, we often tell our kids to do things or not do things. Okay, like don't stand by the frying pan while it's hot. And sometimes, by sometimes I mean often, they'll ask why, which is less innocent than it sounds. We have a family rule. We don't tell our, we don't answer the question why until they start obeying. So we tell them to do this, to put that away, to not do that. And they say, why? We don't explain it until they start doing what we ask of them. Okay? Obedience first, explanation later. This is what's fitting for a young child. Okay? They don't get all of the family business yet. We have mommy and daddy conversations they're not in on. Okay? Jesus is saying a servant, they have no idea what a master is doing. You just command a servant. You expect them to obey. There are things that are above their pay grade. If you tell a servant to chop wood or deliver a letter or sell off a plot of family estate, they don't clap back and ask why. They do what they're told. They're servants. They do, but they don't know. Jesus is saying he doesn't treat us like servants. He doesn't just command us. He explains what's going on in the family business, so to speak. We used to be servants. Servants don't know what the master's up to, verse 15. I've called you friends because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my Father. Christ is the Lord, so we obey his commands, but unlike household servants, we know what he's up to because he's made us his friends. He doesn't just command us, he instructs us. He explains to us what's personal and intimate. Again, 15, we're friends because Jesus has made known to us everything he's heard from the Father. Now, this might sound like no big deal, 
Like Jesus is simply repeating something he's heard. Okay, like we can do this. You could read a teleprompter. You could teach out of a textbook. The father teaches the son. The son teaches us. Like cosmic telephone game. Now to understand how profound of a gift this is, you have to press in a little deeper. Jesus writes or says in John 5, you'll recall, Truly, I tell you, the Son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son likewise does these things. Okay, the Son only does what the Father does, and everything the Father does, the Son does. The Son is speaking about how exactly he's God. We saw this in John chapter 12. This is verse 49. For I have not spoken on my own, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a command to say everything I have said. So the things that I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. Okay, he only speaks what he hears. But as we saw in John chapter 5, it's not as though there's a time where the divine son was ignorant. Like some kind of divine toddler being taught by the Father. Jesus explained the way in which he's God. The Father eternally shares all that he has with the Son such that the way Jesus is God, he's called God's word, John 1.1. He's called God's wisdom, 1 Corinthians 1.24. Okay, wisdom and word, we say, are proper names of the Son. So the divine persons, they each fully possess divine wisdom, but the Son uniquely. The Son alone is called God's wisdom and word because it's how he exists as God. Okay, no, it's a big technical. What's the point? Again, what makes the divine son the divine son that the father shares all that he has with him such that he's God's wisdom and word, he shares with us. The fact that he teaches, it's not the same like someone reporting the news or a teacher teaching you in the classroom. Jesus is inviting us into to share the thing that makes him him, divine wisdom. Jesus is sharing all that he is with you so that God will treat you as God treats him. That's a gift. His teaching is a gift. It's almost, we could say, an extinction of God. God is bringing you in, allowing you to know and to share in the things that he alone knows as God. Jesus' mission can really be captured by two words, revelation and salvation. It's really revelation for salvation, Jesus reveals two mysteries that have been hidden for ages. Two mysteries known only to God, the first being the glorious mystery of the Trinity, that God is three in one. And the second is the wonderful mystery that God would become man to die for the sins of his people. Okay, God's plan, his wisdom, his word, it was hidden deep in God. Peter writes about this in 1 Peter chapter 1. It starts in verse 10. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you, that's to us, they searched and they carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstance the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. The plan and wisdom of God hidden deep within God has come forth. It's so glorious that the prophets of old, they they longed, they inquired toward it, but they didn't know it. 
They only knew it from a distance, in a shadow. It's so glorious that the angels long to catch a glimpse of it. Because God is unfolding truth about himself and he's inviting us into it. Brothers and sisters, we're not even worthy to hear whispers about the mysteries of God, let alone to be called his friends. And yet in the incarnation, God himself stoops low and becomes one of us that we might grasp and understand him and be his friend. This is what Jesus gives us in the gospel and in his word. He reveals heavenly wisdom, saving wisdom, joy-inducing wisdom. The gospel that Jesus shares with us is unlike any other news that you will hear today or ever. It is the only news that defeats death, the only news that gives life, the only news that forgives sins, the only news that will grant you friendship with God, one that pulls you up from what you deserve to give you what you don't. Jesus, in sharing God's wisdom with us, shares himself with us. Things that we could not come to on our own, things that we do not even deserve to hear about, let alone believe in. Jesus shares himself with us. He gives us his love. He gives us his wisdom. And lastly, Jesus shares his joy with us. Jesus shares his joy with us. There's been quite a bit in chapters 13 through 15 that could overwhelm. We could put them in two kind of buckets. First bucket, there's been the news of what feels like just bad, losing, failure news. Christ will be betrayed. The prince of this world is coming. Judas is a bad guy. Peter will fall. The disciples will scatter. Jesus, our long-expected Messiah, will die and depart. Bad news. Bucket one. Bucket two, Jesus is commanding his people to love one another with the same kind of love that he loves. That we would make it our aim to die for the brothers and sisters. If someone told you that the Christian life was to be characterized by trial and obedience, would you sign up for it? And yet Jesus is not trying to bum us or overwhelm us with stress He's trying to overwhelm us with the love of God. Verse 11, I have told you these things, all of these things. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. How could they possibly feel joy? Well, we know that what looks like bad news is actually good news. His betrayal means the forgiveness of sins. His death means our life. His departure means he's preparing a home for us. His bodily absence means the spirit is alive inside of us. All of this means that he loves us with the very love of God, that he teaches us with the wisdom of God, that he has made us lowly servants his friends. And he commands us for our good. Jesus is not commanding us in such a way that we would be we would feel so duty-bound that we would not enjoy life with him. He commands us for our good. His commands promote life and joy as they call us to imitate God who is himself life and joy. His commands actually protect us from all that seek to kill and to steal and to destroy. Make no mistake, disobedience leads to death. Obedience leads to life and love and joy. 
Jesus teaches us these things to give us joy. And it's the kind of joy, look at verse 11 again. It's his own joy. Jesus gives us his own joy. How happy do you think Jesus is? Jesus' goal is to put his joy deep down inside of us so that our joy would come to what? Completion. So that it would be full. So that it would be overflowing. Brothers and sisters, Christ's goal for you is not that you would be a little happy. That you would be partially satisfied. That you would delight sometimes. He wants you to overflow with the joy of God. Joy from God and joy about God. Think again about some of the best gifts you've ever received. Maybe you're blessed, you were given a, your first car, a family heirloom, a painting, an instrument, some sneakers. You were in a pinch and someone gave you some cash. There was probably an intensity of happiness that flamed out. Why? Well, your joy, at least briefly, was tethered to something that didn't last. And more significantly, it's not something that you were made for. Like, shoes are made for you. You are not made for shoes. And yet we often live like it's the other way around. Okay, you can feel them, they can't feel you. The world offers fleeting and false joys, temporary happiness. Anytime joy is found apart from God, it's not only fleeting but scarring. It's destructive. It never leaves us full but only more empty. Our tendency, though, of course, is to look to things for joy, and then when they fail us, we double down and try harder. Like, I must need a better job, a newer house, more clothes, different friends. We fail to grasp that those things cannot give us satisfying joy. Those things are meant to be gifts enjoyed from God that we might enjoy Him. And yet our tendency, what, is to look at our circumstances for joy and then to hold God responsible when he doesn't deliver what he never promised. Jesus is promising something so much greater. It's joy that doesn't diminish because it's not tethered to our circumstances. It's joy that doesn't change because it's tied to the God that doesn't change. It's joy that doesn't break because it's tethered to promises that will not be broken. Jesus is offering us joy that is tethered to God, the unchanging, the incorruptible, the faithful and fount of all goodness and pleasure himself. Jesus is offering us something better, not the world's joy, his own. Who could possibly be happier than Jesus? Jesus gives us joy that's grounded in God. This is why the disciples can, if they abide in Jesus, experience joy even on the eve of his death. This is why, listen to how Paul describes his external circumstances and yet his internal state. This 2 Corinthians 6, Paul writes, We are not giving anyone an occasion for offense so that the ministry will not be blamed. Instead, as God's ministers, we commend ourselves in everything. By great endurance, by afflictions, by hardships, by difficulties, by beatings, by imprisonments, by riots, by labors, by sleepless nights, by times of hunger, by purity, by knowledge, by patience, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, through weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonor, through slander and good report, 
regarded as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet recognized, as dying yet see we live, as being disciplined yet not killed, as grieving yet always rejoicing, as poor yet enriching many, as having nothing yet possessing everything. How can the Christian have nothing and yet possess everything? They have Jesus. The Christian alone can experience life and death, joy and grief, riches and poverty. They can possess nothing and yet have everything because they in fact have everything in God. Jesus gives us joy in himself. Because Christ lives, we live. Because he loves, we love. Because he's joyful, we can be joyful too. Christian, you are not promised a lack of pain in this life. You're promised something far greater. You get to be with and like Jesus. God in his kindness uses trial to actually increase our trust in him. To increase our love for one another. To strip away false joys and increase the one true joy. Jesus is sharing all of this with us that we might abound in joy in him. Yes, we can face cancer. We can face unemployment. We can face broken relationship. We can face dead end jobs. Why? Because we have joy in Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't change. A Jesus who is always present. We can have joy. Why? Because God has given us the perfect gift in himself. He so loved us that he sent his son to become one of us, to represent us, to die for us, to rise for us, to reign for us. The Father and Son indwell us in the spirit. They bond us to themselves, making us friends with their son. God himself governs all of our circumstances that we might become more like Christ. He not only commands us to love, he makes us more loving. He teaches us about what he's done and why that we might be full of joy. Christian, does the news of God's love toward you fill you with joy? He wants you to overflow in joy in what he's done for you. Let's pray.